Welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We are bringing on one of my favorite players that I have coached in Cole Bardrow. And Barzy is a kid that uh, was born in the Carolina area and moved his way up to Rochester, New York, where he made hockey uh, a passion. Uh, Barzy went from there to the US NTDP, the National Team Development Program, before coming to Cornell for four years, where I coached him. Uh, he has had a lot of ups and downs in his career. Uh, we'll talk about an injury that he had while he was at Cornell right after he won a gold medal with the World Juniors for Team USA. Um, and we'll also talk about some of the ups and downs that happen in a pro career. But I'm so happy and so proud for Barzi because he did get his first call up this year with the New York Islanders and he scored his first NHL goal in a shootout or not in a shootout on a on a penalty shot which is, uh, which is unreal. So really, really excited to bring Barzy onto the podcast full of energy and another guy that I love having on the podcast too, who is also full of energy is a one J who Jeffrey Lavecchio Vex. What's happening today, my man. Much bro. I, uh, I was really excited to talk with Barzy here from, you know, I remember you putting a tweet out after he scored that goal, uh, and how excited you were for him and, and kind of looked at him a little bit back then. And, to be honest, totally forgot he was alive. And then we brought him on the podcast and started talking to him. And it's just so funny hearing you guys and him talk about how he plays and, and the way that he is in the gym and stuff. Like, I was like, am I talking to myself right now? Like it was, it was actually pretty funny. And one of my pro guys, uh, after we had him on, I was talking to him and I was like, you guys know Cole Bardrow. And one of, one of my guys played with him and it's like, that guy is a savage best teammate of all time, like unreal on the ice, flies around a million miles an hour, super hard worker, unbelievable guy in the dressing room. And he told me to look up this one fight he had. And I don't know if you've seen this, Tulfa, you got to go to YouTube. And anyone listening to this podcast, uh, uh, YouTube, Cole Bardrill fight. He fought a guy, I believe it was last year, or the year before, and there's a scrum in front of the net and he kind of gets popped in the face by some Russian kid. And he literally, the camera zooms in on his face in the last replay and he looks at him and I think he says something like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And he's like, <laughs> two punches the guy. Like while he's being punched in the face, he looks at him and you see his eyes light up. And he's like, yeah, yeah, bing, bing. And just dummies the guy. And we watched it in the gym. The boys were going nuts. It was so funny. I was like, yeah, I would expect that that's how that guy plays, a ball of energy. Like, so that was really cool to kind of kind of talk to him and, and go over the podcast and then have some of my pro guys who played with him tell me some stories. Unreal guy, unreal stories. And uh, love that he that he, you know, earned his way into the NHL. Yeah. I mean, that's a good way of putting it, earned it. And we talk a lot on this podcast and we bring a lot of guests on who have had to battle adversity and Barzy's had to do that for the better part of his, let's call it higher level hockey career uh, between the injuries, between trying to figure out what kind of role and what kind of player he needed to be, to be successful at different levels. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, we've had those conversations between the two of us and just how difficult it can be to figure those kinds of things out when you get to college and even junior and college, but especially pro 
pro hockey. Um, and so just a really enlightening conversation. And yeah, I mean, I guess I should tell like, so the injury that Barzi had. So when I was a coach at Cornell, um, we actually came in the same year, so I didn't recruit him, but my first year as a coach was his first year as a player. And, uh, and there were some ups and downs and his, his sophomore year, he really started to get it going. And in, at the winter time, right around this time, he started to really take off and, and really play well and earned, uh, earned a spot on the U S world junior team went over there. He was an assistant captain on the team. They won the gold medal. He was on the quote unquote grind line that was supposed to shut down the top players in the world. And, and that line did so very, very effectively. He comes back, he's on cloud nine, his first game back, he gets three points, his second game back, boom, he gets hit from behind into the boards, breaks his neck. He's out for the rest of the year. Very, very close to never being able to play again. But played the rest of the game, didn't he? Isn't that he what did play the rest of the game. Yeah, what a savage, crazy, um, absolutely crazy. Um, and and then he had to work his way back. You know, he had to work his way back, and and uh, eventually he did, and and had a great senior year, and and uh, carried that into pros where he's had more ups and downs and injuries and stuff, and and just seeing him score that goal, like you said, if you want to YouTube that fight, that's awesome. But you should also YouTube him scoring his first goal because it was unreal. And he'll talk about it on the podcast. Cause I asked him about it, but you know, just the ultimate competitor, I think as a hockey player, that's kind of like the best compliment you can get from a coach or from an opposing player is he's the ultimate competitor. And, and I've spoken with, with other guys, there's one player, his name's Danny Wolcott. He's in the Tampa Bay organization and, and he's kind of working and helping out in, in our organization right now. Cause they're not playing as an assistant and coach for one of the teams. And I asked him because they played against each other in the AHL. I was like, Hey, you know, Cole Barger, we're having him on the podcast. And he goes, so hard to play against. I hate him, <laughs> you know? And that's like the best. He's like, I think I almost got into a fight with him at some point, you know? And, uh, that, but that's like the best compliment you can get as a hockey player. Sometimes it's just really, really hard to play against an ultimate competitor. It's like a badge of honor for us. And Bert Barzi, he has that in spades and, and you guys will be able to hear the story. Um, you know, one of the most downloaded episodes that we've done is the one with Tyler Parks. Um, who was a goalie that was playing JV high school hockey as a junior in high school in St. Louis, who Jeff trains, and he ended up being an AHL goalie. And so I think people really resonate with stories that have a lot of ups and downs and have some tough spots to them. And this is certainly one of them. And, uh, and the fact that Barzi was able to achieve his dream of being an NHL hockey player, scoring an NHL goal, uh, very, very cool. Very, very proud of him as a, as a former coach. So awesome. I love these stories too. Cause you know, it's easy. I say this all the time said on the podcast, it's easy to look up to Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby guys who've been in the show since, you know, they were destined to be in the show since they were born. Not that they didn't work hard. They worked for everything they had. You, you see all the videos from when they were kids, but like when you got a guy who's really through college junior pro had to battle so much adversity to get that one game or, or, or make it to that next level and stick. It's just, that's more like everyone else who's going through these type of journeys. And I think that people should really look up to them and to give a quick update on Tyler Parks, uh, because of what's happening with COVID and AHL East coast, not knowing if they're going to play NHL, who knows when they're going to start. He actually just got on a plane uh, or he's about to get on a plane in two and a half hours. He just signed in the Slovakian extra league. So the top league in Slovakia, which is a really good league in, awesome. in Europe. So he's going to be playing there for the rest of the season, unless the AHL comes back and he gets a, a contract there, but he's still doing big things. So for everybody who was wondering about him, he's still crushing. I love it. That's so cool. Good for him. Um, I should say too, like 
So in my team building that I do, and I'm doing a lot of distance team building right now, just with COVID and everything. So I get different teams or organizations on, uh, on Zoom and uh, go through my team building stuff. And my favorite slide that we talk about, and we spend, we spend a couple minutes talking about it because it's incredible. And then they do it every year. So every year the AHL comes out with, with uh, a picture of how many players have gone on to play in the NHL that spent time in the AHL. And for me, it's one of the, like for, for all the kids and all the kids that are listening right now, it's, it's a real big eye opener because when I was growing up, you always kind of felt like the people who made the NHL were always like the Connor McDavid's, you know, you watch the ESPN or YouTube highlights and you're like, Oh, these kids are just so talented. You know what I mean? And the actual reality. And if you look at the facts, so 88% of the players that played in the NHL last year spent time in the AHL. 88% of the players that played in the NHL that, uh, last year spent time in the AHL. Almost nine out of every 10 players on a team. And, and I, it's, so I asked them, I said, what does that mean to you? And they're not really sure at first. That means nine out of 10 players at some point in their career were cut. Nine out of 10 players at some point in the players of playing in the best league in the world were told, you know what? you need to go ride a bus. <laughs> you're not good enough and come back and, uh, and, and get better when you're better or come here when you get better. And so it's just a really interesting thing. And then we talk about like, you know, you've played in the coast. I played in the coast. I played in the central league. Like how many players that you played with at those levels had the talent to play in the NHL, like oh, the pure crazy. raw talent to do it. And what I talk about with them with is like, if I asked those players why they weren't in the NHL, what would they say? And the majority of them would say, I got screwed. It was my coach. It was my agent. I wasn't put in the right situations. It wasn't the right role. Blah, 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 blah. The guys who were in the NHL, when they got sent down, it was, I need to get better. I need to take this as, a, as an opportunity to, to learn that I'm not good enough right now yet. And I just need to get better. It's not the circumstances, whatever. It is the circumstances at times. There's a luck, you know, a luck factor to it and who gets injured and, and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like those people take control of their careers and they don't blame anybody else but themselves when they get sent down. And because they have that attitude, it puts them in a much, much greater situation to be called back up again. And uh, it's my favorite part. It's one of my favorite slides that we talk about on the team building stuff. Um, I actually just did uh, three over the last two weeks. I did one with uh, Columbus Junior Blue Jackets. I did one with the Long Island Goals. And uh, last night I actually did one with Highland Park High School in Illinois. And uh, it's so much fun to do. So I should say, like, if, if you're interested, shoot me an email, tofer at thehockeythinktank.com, and we can do some team building stuff. I know right now a lot of rinks are shutting down, so people are trying to get creative on certain things that you can do with your teams and things like that. So I'd be more than happy to work with you guys. So shoot me an email. Maybe we can set that up. But like I said, that's my favorite slide. Every year it comes out, they do it with the, num with the numbers. And 9 out of 10 players that are playing in the best league in the world at some point in their professional career was like, you know what? Go ride a bus. Come back when you're better. I love That's that. So, it's so important for young players to hear, whether your goals are to play professional hockey or not, like every level you are going to hit obstacles and you want to hit those obstacles. You don't want to hit them while you're going through it, but it adversity makes you better. It makes you a better hockey player. It makes you stronger. It makes you tougher mentally. It is so extremely important and lean into it, learn from it, look in the mirror and figure out what you need to do to be better 
to, to play more, to make that team, whatever it is, lean into it. For sure. I, it reminds me, we had uh, our conference a couple of years ago in Chicago. We had an agent named Pete Rutilli that came and, uh, and spoke to us or spoke to us, spoke to, to everybody that was there. And one of his biggest things and one of his biggest pieces of advice as a, as an agent was you don't want to hit your first adversity when you're 23, 24 years old. <laughs> That's something you got to learn. That's something you got to earn. And uh, I mean, he's a, he's a great agent and, and has some, some big time players and has, has done a great job of shepherding a lot of guys through. And it's just an awesome piece of advice um, for, for anybody that's coming up and, and his partner, a uh, guy that he worked with, we should actually, uh, say congratulations to Brett Peterson, uh, who was an agent in their agency who now just got named as the assistant general manager for the Florida Panthers. And, uh, it's really, really groundbreaking stuff. Not only was, was everybody calls him Chubsy, uh, Brett Peterson, um, cause of Chubbs Peterson, happy Gilmore. There you go. Um, <laughs> but, uh, from what I understand, he's the first African-American assistant GM in NHL history. And so just, uh, you know, another step of, of hockey going in the right direction in terms of becoming a more diverse sport. And, uh, you know, he, he's, an, he was an awesome agent, great guy to deal with, uh, when it came to, you know, when I was recruiting players and stuff like that, um, honest guy and, and honest agency and, and, uh, Billy Zito, who is the general manager now in, uh, in Florida, they work together at Acme sports, uh, in that agency back in the day. So, um, congrats to Chubsy. Great, great stuff. And, uh, yeah. What do you think? Pretty cool stuff, huh? That's unbelievable. I think is, uh, his nickname is more <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, like peep the fact that people call him Chubbs is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I don't know you Chubbs, but congrats on being the assistant GM of Florida. And I love your nickname. <laughs> Oh, I love it. All right. Well, we want to get over to Barzi. And before we do actually get over to him, the last thing that we want to talk about is this kind of just exemplifies who he is as, as a person. So he has started a company um, that will, you know, he's still playing hockey and he's still chasing, you know, chasing playing in the NHL and being an NHL player and things like that. Um, and working really hard to do that. But he's also started a company called Bardro Mentoring Group. And his group is, you know, it's starting with him and I'm sure this is going to grow to a ton of other people, but basically what he wants to do is he wants to be a mentor to kids that are coming up. He feels like he was a kid that could have used a mentor at certain times during his youth hockey career, as a lot of things were just uncertain and there were so many different things going on and what better way to be mentored as a kid than from a professional athlete you know, and, and, you know, he has so many stories that he can share and you'll hear his story, um, on this podcast, but as a parent, just picture yourself being mentored by somebody like him, uh, or people that are, you know, associated with him. And so that is one thing I, again, I'm, I'm very proud of him for what he's done in, in his NHL career, but this, I mean, this just takes it to a whole nother level, but because he's trying to give back to the game that gave him so much. And so you should, if you can go to Bardro mentor, group.com and check it out uh again imagine having your kid mentored by someone like barzy who you will see on this podcast who is a professional athlete and uh, i just think it's so so cool what he's doing and i'm really really excited 
to bring this to you and bring his story to you and, and to share what he's trying to do in giving back uh, after he's done with his hockey career and during his hockey career as he goes through it. So, um, but before we do get over to Barzi, we have a new thing that we're going to do here uh, at the end of the intros for our podcast. And uh, you know, one of the things in the feedback that we get, you know, we have a lot of coaches that follow the hockey think tank. We have a lot of coaches that listen to the podcast and stuff and uh, love talking hockey and things like that. And one of the websites, that I think does an unbelievable job of providing education for coaches is icehockeysystems.com. Um, so if you haven't been to icehockeysystems.com, they do they have so much content out there um, that can help you become a better coach. They have so many drills. They have like Dennis Savard talking about systems, and they actually have like a really cool free uh, drill drawing tool that you can go on there and actually draw your own drills up and, and share them with people and things like that. So um, they're actually coming on as a sponsor now for the podcast. And so we're going to do a little bit of a segment um, before we head over to our interview um, talking about a drill that we've collaborated on and I think is really good and can help and you can use it out in your practices for the coaches that are listening. And the one that we want to talk about here today is it's called the three on three gates of Buffalo. And I am a huge, huge, huge believer in puck support. Like, I think it is one of the most important skills slash hockey sense things that you can teach as a coach. And this is a great drill to be able to do that. And basically what it is, is you put um, probably four different sets of tires, or it can change based on, you know, which zone you're in or how you want to do it, how much space you want to give your, your players. But you put like, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll call it four, four different tires um, in sets around the ice. And those are your goals, your quote unquote goals. And the way that you score a goal is to pass the puck through one of those sets of tires to a teammate, right? So you go three on three inside the zone and it allows you to be creative. But the biggest thing that you emphasize as a coach is you have to support the puck. So whenever you, your teammate has the puck, you have to get to a spot where they can pass you the puck through one of those tires to score a quote unquote goal. And it's, it's awesome. Like I've done this drill with, uh, with my team plenty of times. Um, it's nice that there's a name to it. Now the gates of Buffalo <laughs> easy enough. And, uh, but they have so many drills like that on their website. Uh, they actually helped us, uh, put a drill page on our site at the hockey think tank.com too. Um, and it's just a great collaboration, uh, with the company that does a fantastic job. So they're coming on as a sponsor. We're going to talk about every week, one drill that's, uh, that's on the site. And, uh, if you haven't been there yet, I know I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this, that are coaches are familiar with it, but if you're not go to icehockeysystems.com, it's a fantastic site. Yeah, we did that drill with uh, Mike Barra, the head coach that I coached with two years ago, um, or the last two years, I guess. And, uh, yeah, the boys all really like that one. Makes you think outside the box, makes you read and react and, like, you know, try and play chess versus checkers. I love that drill. Yeah, and it puts the onus. It puts the onus on the players without the puck because they yeah. have to get to spots. Like, they have to work hard to get to spots. And how many times as a coach are you talking about that? Right. And uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice way of learning, too, because they have to, you know, they have to think a little bit outside the box. It's not your typical, you know, pattern of a game where you're playing. But they have to think outside the box to, the box to get to certain spots so they can get the puck. And, and uh, it's awesome. Love it. Okay. So, uh, with that, so they're coming on as a new sponsor. Our title sponsor is, uh, is gel sticks 
And we've, you know, they've been with us from day one, pretty much when we started having sponsorships and, uh, you know, they have the best weighted training sticks. And, and again, now that we're in quarantine, a lot of people, uh, a lot of rinks are shutting down. This is a fantastic way. And Jeff, you talk about it all the time. Like now's a time where you can separate yourselves from other people. There's a lot of players that are playing video games all day. Now there's a lot of players that are just kind of sitting around wondering when they're going to get back to rinks and when things are going to become a little bit more normal again. So this is a time where everybody's in this little lull period that you can really separate yourself from the competition. And so gel sticks is a great way to do that. Uh, awesome weighting training sticks. Um, Jeff uses them in the gym, uses them uh, with all the players that he has. I know a lot of different people who use them uh, on the ice with their players and stuff like that too. So go to gelsticks.com, G-E-L-S-T-X.com. Use the coupon code think tank one word, and you'll get a nice little discount on, uh, on your sticks. Jeff, yeah, train heroic. Yeah. Train Heroic, just want to thank them, one of our sponsors as well. That's where all my programs live. Uh, my Train With Me team, which has actually been so sick. Tope's been doing it. I've, uh, I'm up to 40 people now that are doing the exact training program that I am. You could use this in season for, for younger hockey players or the coaches, moms and dads. You want to work out in a way that's going to make you elevate your life. That's what I'm using that stuff for. And it's been really cool to have uh, retired hockey players, ex-hockey players, hockey coaches doing it with me because you're going to learn a ton of stuff uh, doing that program that you can then teach your kids, no matter how old they are, you can teach them correct form and stuff. So that's been super exciting. That's only $35 a month. It's hilarious. I could easily be charging well over a hundred dollars for it, but I love to help the people, my man. Love to help the people. Jeffrey Levecchio, man of the people. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then obviously at the end of all this, we always want to make sure we thank the most important people. And that's you guys, the listeners. And the numbers continue to grow for this. And we thank you for providing us feedback, whether you're shooting us ratings uh, or reviews on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your stuff. I know a lot of people are sharing with their Facebook groups and with their teams and with their parents and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So we really appreciate that. It's stories like these with Cole Bardrow coming on that really make this podcast go. I think these really resonate with a lot of different people. And uh, this is just a fantastic, fantastic kid that I had the opportunity to coach and you're going to absolutely love him. And you're going to absolutely love his story coming up right now. So without further ado, here we go with Cole Bardrow. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast one of my favorite players that I have ever coached, Cole Bardrill. Barzi, what is happening today? Not too much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. You bet. And I know it's a, it's a tough time for you and, and a lot of other <laughs> pro hockey players right now trying to figure out what's going on. But hopefully we can have some fun here for an hour or so and and uh, talk some hockey, talk about your journey. And, and typically how we usually go about it is uh, with all of our guests is we take it way back and try to figure out how you fell in love with this great game. So um, how did you fall in love with it? Like who were your biggest people that were around you that helped you fall in love with it? And uh, talk to us a little bit about it. Yeah. So I I wouldn't say that I really, you know, came from a hockey family. I think that's how, you know, most guys, especially at the high levels kind of get into the game, but I was born in New Hampshire. We were big, big ski family. Um, And when I was three, we moved to North Carolina and my brother actually started playing hockey, obviously, because there wasn't any hills around for the skiing. But, uh, you know, like any little brother, I just want to do whatever my big brother did. So I kind of followed suit with him. And, um, you know, right from there, that's when I fell in love with it and kind of never looked back. So were you a Canes fan when you were like younger? 
I was I was a Canes fan. I talked to this about with a lot of people, which is kind of funny. I never really like followed the NHL. You know, I was never one of those guys who was glued to the TV when when the game came on at night and whatever, and you know, followed people specifically and their stats and whatnot. I kind of just, you know, loved going to the local rink and playing, and and that's that was the extent of it. <laughs> I like it. Well, I'm sure you had enough energy to go around. Let me ask you this: so exactly. having coached you and knowing you as well as I do. So I have a daughter that's three years old and she has literally endless energy. She does not stop. And that is you to a T. How, how did your parents go about parenting you when you just were always on the go? Yeah. I mean, I, everyone struggles, I think with my amount of energy, just always wanting to do just <laughs> jump from thing to thing. But I think that's kind of, you know, what made me a, a good athlete and a good hockey player is that that amount of energy I had is I just the second I got home from school, I'd go out into the, you know, the driveway, I'd be shooting hoops and then I'd be, you know, shooting pucks and then I'd be playing football and it kind of just bounced around and, and played everything. And, uh, I don't know. It never got old for me. It was great. <laughs> they just like let me it. go. I guess they answer the question. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's good. Good, good advice. Um, so like you're, it's crazy. So you grew up in New Hampshire, you moved to, uh, Carolina, then you made your way up to like upstate New York area. And through all of that, you ended up at the NTDP and got the chance to play for the national team development program. Um, what was that experience? Like kind of just originally, like even just finding out about the NTDP and then going through the tryouts and making the team and stuff, that must've been a pretty cool moment for you. Yeah. And yeah, so growing up in North Carolina, obviously wasn't a, you know, a hockey hotbed. So, um, you know, the exposure, there's no AAA there, but when I moved up to upstate New York, I, I played for the Syracuse stars for a year and then, you know, it got a little expensive. So played in the Auburn ice, uh, Auburn ice Hawks organization, eventually moved to Rochester, kind of bouncing around a lot like that too. But, um, it was something that like, you know, I really didn't know a lot about it until kind of the year that the final 40 camp was there. Um, and then a lot of people started talking about it, especially on my, on my team and whatnot. And, um, you know, the kind of the story of my career that I feel like it's always progressed of me, you know, not really thinking that I was going to have the opportunity to play at the next level. So when I did get that final 40 offer, I was, I was pretty shocked that I was kind of in that, you know, top tier class of guys. Um, the same happened kind of when I went to college and started getting recruited, never really thought that was going to be a possibility. And until I started getting letters and phone calls, which, um, I guess was a pretty cool way to go about it. Yeah, I'd say so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Not really expecting the next step. Um, but then the final 40 camp too, it kind of went there, was dealing with an injury, thought I played really poorly, thought there was, thought there was no way that you know, I was going to get an offer from there. And actually I got, I got called into the office. I remember at the end of the camp and thinking, I was like, I must be getting in trouble for, for chirping someone or doing something. Cause there's no way I'm going to get offered a spot here. And sure enough, you know, they put a contract in front of me and I will always remember my dad tapping me on the shoulder to be like, sign this and get out of here before they change their mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was uh, that was a, a big step for me in my career there. So for you, like, what did that mean to you being able to represent our country? Um, you know, you're a very proud kid and like coming from the background that you did where hockey wasn't the end all be all of everything that you did, which is probably for the other 39 players that were at the camp. <laughs> it's right. probably a lot of how they grew up, you know, like what, what, what were the feelings going through you? Just knowing like I am one of the best arguably 20 players in the United States. And I have this opportunity to come represent our country and really vault my hockey career into things that I never even thought was possible. Like what was kind of going through your head there? Right. I mean, just pure excitement and and joy when I, when I first got the offer, but 
um, to be honest, I, I think I was a little too far over my head. Like I was, I was drowning a little bit when I first got there, I had some, um, some pretty big injuries that kind of limited my training going into it. And, you know, I remember after the first week, it's something I'll never forget. My, my coach, Ron Rolston called me into his office. And at the time we had 13 fours and he's like, Hey, Bardra, I'm bringing in here. I thought you'd be a top two line guy right now. I can't even say you're in the top 12. And so obviously as a 16 year old, that was a, that was a huge, you know, shock to my confidence. I think that, um, I always am a big believer in that you got to be the guy wherever you are. And I think in Rochester, obviously I was one of the better players, had a lot of opportunities to play in all situations. And then going to the program where, you know, everyone's the big dog from where they come from. It was, it was, it was a lot for me to handle. And I think that my confidence took a massive, massive hit and kind of started this uphill battle, a transition from a, you know, top six scoring guy to, to a grinder. So, um, I, I always look back and people ask me all the time, would you do it again if you had the opportunity and kind of, you know, what you pointed out, uh, being able to represent your country, travel the world, you know, play in the elite competition. That's something that I think definitely helped me. And I'll, you know, I love that and that aspect of it, but from a development standpoint, you know, I think that I could have benefited from maybe going to juniors and, and just getting a little bit more time to develop. So the program is, is really bittersweet for me in, in that sense. And I guess to keep on going from that, it, maybe it was the the right play in the sense that it turned me into a, into a grinder, a bottom six PK or, and that's inevitably what I've done in pro. So it's, uh, it's definitely bittersweet and it, it goes both ways for me for sure. That's really interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like, you know, coaching you and and having these types of conversations when we were working together, I feel like that was a, a real big up and down with you was trying to figure out who you were as a player, you know, because you're, you're this call it a top two line guy, you know, getting a lot of points and then you go to the NTDP and, and now you're assigned to a more of a grinder role. And then we get you at Cornell and we're like, no Barzy, we want you to be a top two line right, guy. Right. Like we want you, we've seen you play offensively. And by we, I mean the other coaches, cause I was, my first year was your first year. Um, but like we, we figured you'd be coming in and, and being an offensive guy. And that didn't really necessarily come right away for you. It, it yeah. took a little bit of time for that. So how did you kind of manage just like, those two different roles and being asked to be two different players. And, and that must've been pretty tough for you, especially you came in as a true freshman to Cornell uh, from, from 16 to 18 years old. Right. And I going off the true freshman thing, like I said, I think I definitely could have used some time to uh, develop in the USHL or, or some other junior league. But, you know, when you're at NTDP and you have all these guys committing by the time they're 16 and seven, you kind of just, you want to run with the crowd. You don't want to, you don't want to be that outsider that's, that's doing something that the rest of the team's not doing. So I definitely think I would have gone back and played with juniors, but um, you know, going back to that balancing act, I think it's something that I still struggle with today. Um, You know, still trying to find my, my ways or my, my role per se, you know, and I think that I, I struggle at points, you know, I try to, get too creative in the offensive zone and it, and it causes issues and turnovers where my coach gets mad at me. And then, you know, I get running around and try to be this grinder who all he does is hit and chirp. And, and that also backfires on me. So I think it's something that, um, you know, when I find the sweet spot, my game really, my, it really excels. And I feel really confident that I'm bringing a lot to the table and then, but it is, I mean, 
in the pro, especially when you have, you know, 82 or 76 games, it's kind of tough to find that sweet spot every time. So, like I said, I guess it's kind of just a work in progress. You, you figure out what works, what doesn't work, and you just try to continue to be a more consistent player. It's so hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's so Especially hard. when it becomes a, you know, it becomes a job and there's, and there's more on the line other than just having fun. So it's, it's crazy. And, you know, Cornell was a great experience for me, kind of jumping from that grinder to, I came in and I, I, you guys had confidence in me right away. And I think that's huge from a player's perspective is just to have the trust to your coach. And, you know, I got put in, in multiple situations, power play penalty killed right off the bat. And I think that really helped me get back to, you know, realizing that I could be more than just this bottom six grinder that, you know, runs around and chirps. <laughs> Which you did that too. <laughs> Definitely good at that, but it runs away from me at times. <laughs> In pro, do you feel like a pressure from the NHL club that you need to have points to get called up? Because I was kind of in a similar situation, a similar type player, it sounds like. And I remember it was either like the assistant GM or one of the scouts in Boston being like, you know, you're kind of an in-betweener. Like you have skill, but you are not skilled. Like you you are you can play that that bottom six role, but like you're not a fighter. And back then, like fourth line guys were just fighters. So like do you I always felt pressure well like I, I got to get points if I want to get called up but I also like have to play like block shots like hit, hit finish hits be in guys faces but like I always felt like I couldn't do either of them without focusing on one of them and I always kind of would get caught in the middle but like you said every now and then I'd find that sweet spot and everything would go right but I always felt like I was caught in between. Like, do you feel a pressure for one way or the other that you think will make you an NHL, you know, regular? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you're, you're reading the inside of my brain there. And that's, you know, that's something that, you know, I've struggled with my whole, my whole four years and I started my career off in Philly and, you know, never got a shot with them. And that was something that was, that was really hard for me as I felt like they always told me, you know, don't worry about points, you're a bottom six guy, just be energy. But then at the end of the day, the only guys that were getting called up were the guys that, you know, were leading the leading the team in points. So it just didn't make sense. And then when when you see those types of guys get called up, you know, then you try to flirt more towards the skill side of your game. And and that's where, you know, you can get in trouble. Um, but I'll tell you what, like going to the Islanders, it was, it was a breath of fresh air. I, you know, kind of got brought in. They said, we, we see as a bottom six guy, but we know there's more potential in the tank. And, um, you know, it was the first time that I felt like they were honest organization in the sense of, you know, they don't call up on need. Um, you know, I had, I think I had two points in my first 30 games there and one of their, you know, fourth line centers went down and I got the call instead of the guy leading the team. So it was just kind of reassuring to show that they, you know, they call up guys based on need. And, and I guess, I guess that gives me reassurance to find that sweet spot a little easier that I don't need to push for those extra points. And I don't need to push for those offensive chances that I can just, you know, play my role and, and, you know, be successful that way. That's awesome and super smart of you to focus on that. And that's great. You're an organization that, that is doing that. I'm sure that definitely helps you to be like, oh, point, like points matter, but they don't matter. You know, like if you're going to get called up, you're going to go up there and be a fourth line guy. So why not play that way in the American League? That's exactly. awesome. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, when you do get that reassurance, when you get opportunities by, you know, staying in your role, I think it's easier not to it's inevitable that everyone's going to grasp onto that, that point situation. You know, I mean, that's what, everyone wants points at the end of the day, but I think it is, like I said, a little easier to stay in your lane of a, you know, a bottom six role guy when you're getting rewarded for doing those things. And I think 
to be honest, eventually, I think if you do stay in that role, that the points come naturally, it's kind of weird how that works out too. It's all about, and I think some of the best coaches there, they're really good at this. It's about finding what the best version of that player is, you know, and then encouraging that player to the play to their identity and don't try to be somebody that you're not figure out what the, what your potential is and how you can get there and what that means. And, and then just coach that player to the best of your ability to get to the best of their ability in that. It's a, that's a tough thing to do though. And especially in pro hockey, when you're juggling all these things, like it's crazy. And I think that to be honest, I think that everyone really struggles with that, whether they're a skill guy or they're a bottom six guy. I think that that's uh, I mean, they might see, poised and confident from an outside perspective but i do think that that's uh you know a inner game between the years battle that that most guys fight yeah no doubt no doubt and uh well this is this is really interesting conversation barzi and and a lot of it 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 ties into what i want to talk about next and and that is your sophomore year at cornell your second year at cornell because you were really starting to come into your own like you you had kind of had the first year as a freshman year where you were kind of like you said figuring it out a little bit who you wanted to be and then you really came out of the gates hot in in the beginning of that second year and ivy league you only play nine ten games at the beginning of the year which kind of sucks but um but uh you know, you, you get through that and, and you're playing well, you're, it seems like you have your mojo and you're going and you're confident and all this kind of stuff. And you get rewarded, you get rewarded by, uh, being asked to be on the world junior team for USA and you become an assistant captain on that team. Uh, your team wins the gold medal. You know, you were on the, I think it was probably self-proclaimed grind line (laughs) with, uh, yeah, with, uh, I think it was Hartman and Pete all right. Those are two line mates. And you guys were tasked, wasn't it? You guys shut down Nugent Hopkins, right? That was the well, the line for Canada. Oh well, we shut him down. But that's that was our that was our claim that we were shutting down the other team's <laughs> top lines. So. <laughs> Do you remember who else was on that line for Canada? I remember Nugent Hopkins. No, I don't. I don't know who else they had, but that was a that was a lockout year. So I know that they had like they were they were full steam they had a full boat there and uh i mean everyone did it was it was a really good tournament yeah so so tell me about that like how awesome was it to win the gold medal world juniors uh and just with guys because a a ton of the guys that you played with on the ntdp i would imagine were on that team and it's really cool for a lot of you who have started at 16 years old play with each other blood sweat and tears for a couple years then you go you all go to college and you kind of come back it's your kind of your last hurrah as, as a group to play in that world juniors together. So talk to us a little bit about what that experience was like and how cool it was for you. Yeah, it was, it it was unbelievable. Obviously, you know, it's tough to, to bring words for, for the experience that we went through there, but, um, kind of just growing up as, like you said, you're with each other, U17s, U18s, and then some of you come back for the U21s. It was funny that, you know, we kind of struggled as a team in comparison to, you know, say the 92 group and the 94s who had these absolute studs. We kind of were, you know, struggles as a team, especially in the USHL, but it seemed that whenever we played in the international tournaments that we, you know, somehow came together and did really well. We actually won the U17 challenge, which the USA usually doesn't do, and then won U18 again and then um obviously won uh world juniors there too which was which was kind of cool but the best thing about that tournament that i that i tell everyone that i think was so special is that i've never in all my years of playing and you know seeing other teams i've never seen a team come together so well um in the sense that you know you, you hear people say roles and whatnot but everyone had their role and everyone was committed and understood 
where they were and what other guys did. So I always say like when it was time to score a goal, you know, is the third and fourth line was more than happy with taking a seat and what having the top two lines, you know, get a few extra reps and with vice versa, if we were protecting a, a one goal lead, you know, it was those top two lines weren't, weren't bitter about not playing or not being out there for the empty net. Say they were like, you guys go and, and do your thing. Same thing with power play penalty kill. And to be honest, I, that's why we won. I don't think if you look at the rosters, I don't think that on paper we had the the most skilled team in the tournament by any means, but at the end of the day, I just, we meshed so well and everyone, everyone played their role to a T and, and we were just a team. And I think it was, it was, it was really awesome to see. It was, it was a cool experience. So why do you think that is? Because it's tough to do in a, uh, in a term. Was it something like, do you think it was a lot of the character of the players in the room? Was it something that the coaches did? Um, like, did you have any kind of idea of why? It I, I, I really don't. I, you know, I've always tried to think about that. And it's, and it's usually hard in those tournaments. Cause again, you know, you're bringing all the top guys into a certain, into a one specific team where you know at at their individual teams during the season they're probably the guy they're they're you know they're looked upon to score the goals and and take leadership um but to be honest i, I really don't know i don't know if it was just the perfect mix of person perfect person excuse me personalities but it really was just a perfect mesh of guys and i i just don't think i'll ever really see that again where people are so willing to accept a role and, and, you know, be that specific part of a machine. <laughs> That's unreal. It was crazy. It was, it was an unbelievable experience for sure. Yeah. It's so cool to hear you talk about that. And and I still remember the day that you guys played Canada. I think you beat them in the semis, right? Yeah. Canada in the semis to go to the finals. And I was recruiting in Calgary at the time and obviously coaching you at the time too. So I remember waking up at whatever it was, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning and to watch it. Cause it was overseas in Europe. And uh, obviously I'm watching TSN because I'm in Canada and world juniors in Canada is world juniors in Canada. Right? right. So, so I remember when you guys beat them and then they had the TSN panel afterwards, you know, uh, Bob McKenzie and James Duthie and, and all those guys, it was like, literally somebody died. It was literally like somebody died. The Americans beat the Canadians and the semis and the Canadians were done and they weren't going to be playing for the gold medal. And I remember just a smile on my face, just, just after watching you guys play and, and, and knowing you were there and, and it was just, uh, it was pretty funny. It was a pretty unique experience watching Canada lose to the U S in Canada that time. <laughs> it was, it, it was, it was, like I said, I just, I really can't put words to it, but and we also seem to just really come to a team that got better throughout the tournament. I think that's a big key to success in, in those, you know, shorter tournaments is whatever team ends up getting better as the games go on, we'll, we'll obviously have the most success. And it just seemed like we kind of figure it out during the preliminary rounds. And then each game in the, you know, in the knockout round, we just got better and better and better. And uh, I don't know, it was a, it was an unbelievable ride. It was awesome. Love to hear that. Love to hear that. Well, this is where the story gets a little bit tough, right? This is, uh, this is, you know, you come back again, we talked about, you know, you, you're finding your stride in your sophomore year and you're playing really well and you have all this confidence and, and you go to world juniors, you're an assistant captain on the team, you win the gold medal, just absolutely flying high. You come back first. I can't remember. Was it the first or the second game? It was definitely second the first game. weekend, but okay. So the second weekend or the second game, your first weekend back, we're playing against RPI and you get hit from behind into the boards. And uh, we didn't know it at the time because you're a tough son of a bitch um, and, and played the rest of the game. 
Um, but what we didn't know was that you broke your neck and that was, uh, you know, you, you go from an all time high to an all time low. And, uh, so take us through that. I mean, I'm, I mean, we've talked about it and, and I remember going to the doctors with your mom and them giving you the tough news and everything, but take us through, you know, that, that high to that low just situation. Yeah, it was, you know, going back to the sweet spot, I guess, you know, right as world juniors had wrapped up and I was coming back, I felt like I'd, I'd found that sweet spot in my game. And, you know, to be honest, probably even to this day, that's, that's the most confident I've been as a player. And, um, you know, even at Cornell wasn't a huge point guy, but I remember coming back that first game and I, I think I had three points at union, just absolutely feeling it, you know, <laughs> and, um, the next game kind of was in the corner in the first period and, you know, went to make a, a quick cutback and got hit from behind, didn't get my chest up. And I remember at the time, you know, I lost sensation in my, in my hands and my fingers. And I was like, I'm, I'm in, I'm in some trouble here. But um, by the time Ed Kelly, our trainer got out to me, I kind of just thought that maybe I cracked a rib, had a concussion. Um, I, the, the sensation went away. I was like, okay, I'm just going to skate this one out. And um, ended up finishing the game again, kind of knew something was going on, but obviously didn't know the severity of it. And then, um, wasn't until I think Monday morning, I went in to see, uh, Ed Kelly and he would, and said, Hey, neck's still not feeling good. He, he sent me down to get a precautionary x-ray at, uh, our local, uh, you know, hospital on campus there, Gannett. And I remember walking in with a book bag and then getting an x-ray and the doctor coming in saying, lay down, don't say a word, don't shake your head. The ambulance is on its way. And so just kind of walk in with my book bag, kind of high on life. My game's exactly where it wants to be. And then all of a sudden I'm getting, you know, stretchered out of the, out of the hospital. They're going to get CT scans. Um, I don't know. It was a, it was a crazy experience for sure. That's uh, that, that, I mean, I remember that time and, and getting that news and you know, just feeling for you. I, I think as a coach, you know, you, you go through a lot of ups and downs with your players, whether it's your relationship with the players, you know, them going through stuff, whether it's hockey wise or personal wise and all that kind of stuff. And, and just to see, because Barzi, like you were, you were the kind of guy that always brought the energy. Like you always brought the energy to the, to practice. You always brought the energy to the locker room and, and knowing first of all, that, number one, you were going to be hurting. And, and we didn't know at the time what was going on. Like, is this a career ending injury? Is this just something like we had no, so your first, your first inclination is, uh, is, is for you. And then you think about the team and you think about well, who's going to bring that smile every day. Like people enjoy being around you. And, and, uh, and it was just a, it was a shot to everybody just feeling for you and what you were going through and then seeing how we were going to have to move forward without you. It was, it was tough. And, and, uh, but with that, you know, obviously had a lot of, a lot of really good guys in the room and, and what was that like being around and, and how much did the guys support you? What was your family like at that time to kind of help you through? Because, eventually we found out that you didn't need to have surgery, which was, which was right. thank God, but, but also you were going to be done for the year. Um, so take us through your mindset as you were kind of coping with what happened and, and being out for so long and being away. Yeah. I've always, always done pretty well with, with injuries, to be honest, kind of just try to, you know, well, you've had a million of them. For yeah, today. exactly. Kind of find them. Um, but this one was super unique in the sense of the final diagnosis or the, you know, the road to recovery was that I had to wear a neck brace for 24 seven for four months. So, and on top of that, I, you know, couldn't do any physical activity, couldn't, couldn't 
you know, wear a backpack. I had to get a rolly book bag to go around campus. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I remember that now. Yeah. And and then on top of that, you kind of have the mental uh, the piece of it where you know you hear a breaking a broken neck, and I'm like, man, I I can't do anything here because if I make one false move, I, I'm going to be paralyzed. You know, so it was it was a weird dynamic to try to navigate. Usually, when you have an injury, say you know you broke your foot or something, you can still go and stick handle in the shooting room or something like that to keep yourself busy. And then you know if it's an upper body injury, you can kind of you know jump on the bike and get a sweat in or whatnot. But for me, and you know you've noted to it too, and that's definitely. Um, the thing for me is I, I've got an endless amount of energy and I'm, whether it's my mouth always moving or just always buzzing around the rink, I, I need something to keep me occupied. And for me to kind of be held down in that sense, it was, it was super tough for me. And like you said, I mean, group of guys there at Cornell with, obviously it's a brotherhood and, and they were awesome, you know, going out of their way to help me out with different things, whether it be, you know, taking my books to class, little things like that, or picking food. I mean, they were obviously going out of their way and, um, you know, can't say enough about them for doing stuff like that. But, um, also I would say that I tested the limits quite a bit after I kind of got the hang of it for lack of a better word. I remember I'd be in the gym shooting hoops and Ed Kelly would come in screaming at me, freaking out. <laughs> but you know, I, you, you kind of, that's, that's really all you can do when you get put in that situation, I think is try to find the positives and, um, and, you know, really stick to those and just try to keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I remember I, I started feeling a little bit better about it because you hear about it and then get the chance to talk to you. But then the first time you came back to the rink, you got the, you got the, the neck brace right. on, but there's still a smile from ear to ear and you're bouncing off the walls. And it's just like, okay, Barzy's okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll never forget that too. Actually. I remember, you know, I, cause I think we, we ended up having a tough weekend that weekend or whatnot. So when I came in for the first time to the rink, you know, Shafe was reaming out some of the guys. And I remember just peeking my head and everyone <laughs> saw me in the neck brace and just burst out laughing. <laughs> I was like, okay, at least I can, at least I can provide some comic relief here. I do have to say that one of the hardest jobs I had as uh, as an assistant coach, especially to, to Shafe, and it was similar when I was at Miami with Rico Blasi was there's sometimes where a coach just says something like being strict and stern, but it's absolutely, absolutely hilarious and they don't really understand because they're so pissed off that it's like it's actually kind of funny and then as an assistant coach you can't laugh exactly like, i mean oh there was a, there was a, <laughs> as a player that's when you just look at each other and start giggling too but yeah Shafe definitely had a lot of those one-liners that i wish i kind of you know kept a pen and notepad <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean that was obviously a, a an extremely tough time but you persevered so much through it. And, and I wanted to talk about next because uh, you played the next year, you were able to play the next year. And and then your senior year, I feel like is really where things kind of took off. And, and I specifically remember you coming in to, to me and being like, let's do this. Like, I want this. I like, I'm let's go. And the two of us, I mean, I can't remember how many, whether it was daily or it was close to daily, just being on the ice whether it was in between classes or before, before the morning, pretty much every day. And you were working on your game and uh, you know, I feel like just your confidence from putting in the work, it just skyrocketed. And then you really just exploded in, in especially the second half of your senior year. So talk a little bit to us and, and talk to some of these kids. We got a lot of kids that listen to this just about how much that work went into your confidence and, and you putting in the time to, to build that confidence in your game. 
Yeah. And especially after that injury that you went through. (laughs) Right. But I think too, before, before the injury, you know, kind of, you know, being like, we said the pinnacle of my career and and knowing where I could be as a hockey player, I think just knowing that is what really, you know, set me full speed. My senior year is like, I want to get back to that point. I know that I have that in me and I just need to put it in the work at this time. So again, you, you talked about confidence and I think obviously the biggest thing for confidence is, is preparation. And if you, if you know that you can, you know, if you know that you have that ability, really all you got to do is put in the work. And like you said, I just remember kind of being like, let's get our extra reps in in the morning. And, and hopefully that translates into the game. And, and sure enough, it, it did for me. I kind of, again, found that sweet spot. And unfortunately, I think we had a pretty tough year that year. It was, I think we were battling with injuries, you know, Lowry, who was one of our top guys went down. I think everybody went down. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. We had a lot of injuries there too, but from a personal standpoint, again, it was, I was seeing the, it come to fruition from all the hard work I was putting into it. And it actually, it paid off big time. So it was, that was good. You know what the other thing is too, Barzi, that I think about when I think about you and your play is like, you know, you obviously put in the work to to become the player that you were, but I feel like another reason why you've been so successful and have been able to play games in the NHL is just the joy that you play with when you play the game. And, you know, there's certain players that you coach and there's certain players that you play with who, who play because they're good. <laughs> you know, they, they do love it. Like they, 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 For to sure. a certain extent, but it's just kind of something they've been good at and they put in the work when they're asked to. And then there's other guys that just absolutely love to play the game of hockey, you know? So I wanted to ask you how much you feel like that was a big part of you becoming the hockey player that you were and being able to, to get to the pinnacle. And then just how, how do you feel like you, I mean, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning but was that something that was learned was that something that you just kind of fell in love with it just from being out on the ice like how do you develop that kind of thing yeah I think I mean I think I just loved the game loved the game from the beginning when I first started playing you know it's not just the game too it's kind of the whole yeah environment of being around the guys having a you know sense of the brotherhood that I mentioned earlier um just love showing up to the rink every day and to be honest, you know, I play my best hockey when I'm having fun, but it's also, it's hard to get to that point. It kind of goes back to that sweet spot and, you know, trying to make everything click that it's, it's not, you can't just say, Hey, go have fun out there. And, and, you know, and then it all comes together. It's something that, you know, it's a, I don't know how to explain it. And that's kind of a constant battle for myself too, is how do I get back to that spot where I'm not, you know, gripping my stick super tight and worried about making a mistake. Um, but then also not being too lackadaisical too, in the sense where I'm just not trying, you know, trying moves and things that I wouldn't normally do. It's kind of, again, trying to find that joy, but also that competitiveness. And it's a battle that I'm still fighting with today. And I think, you know, I'll fight with it for the rest of my career. And it's just hope that I can find that joy and get to that point more often than not. Yeah, Vex, I got to imagine. I mean, I dealt with that in my career. I, I think every high-level player deals with that at some juncture, trying to find that that balance, like you said, of the fun versus the work and, and you know, not it not being a job. It's seeming like a job, especially when you get to college hockey, pro hockey, when it's an everyday grind and it's a long season. You know, Vex, you know, kind of going along with what Barzi was saying, is that something that you battled with in, in your career a little bit when you got to the higher levels as well? The only time I ever felt like it was a job when I was in a slump. (laughs) (laughs) Things are going well. But it's the chicken to the egg, right? Like what comes first? Does the slump come first or does the the grind of it come first and that causes the slump? 
No, you're everything's great. Everything's gravy when you're burying, when you know everybody's <laughs> loving you, you're playing well, your team's winning. It could just slump could be your personal or team. And then like, man, if you get on a team where you go on a, like three games in a row, four games in a row lost, the sky's falling. You're just like, oh my God, is this ever gonna end? And you know, then it becomes a job. Then it's like, all right, like what do we gotta do to get back to this? But when you're winning, everything's fun. So I mean it's it's like it's not even a job. You're you're lucky to be in that position. <laughs> yeah, I mean I couldn't I couldn't agree with that at that anymore. And I think it's, you know, kind of riding that roller coaster is is kind of like what make the great players great, you know, is that when they get in that slump, they know that they're, you know, one shot, one goal away from kind of getting back into into the rhythm where everything's going in again. And I think some other guys who, who struggle with that and are fighting the puck too much is that's when that, that slump kind of extends itself into an extended period of time. And, and that's when they get in trouble. Yeah. And that's why I feel like as a coach um, it's so important, like you can hold guys accountable and you can be hard on guys, but I think there, it, there always has to be an underlying principle of like, I believe in you because when, I mean, it's easy for everybody says like, you know, you got to be strong mentally and, and, you know, self-motivated and all that kind of stuff, but there's nobody in the world that's self-motivated and self-confident enough to not have support <laughs> and, and be confident. So as a coach, that's such like a delicate thing that you have to really be mindful of is yes, you have to hold people accountable when they're not doing things right. But the player always has to feel like you believe in them in, in some capacity or another in, in your skills and your play and, in whatever. And it's a, uh, it's a tough thing to balance as a coach. Sometimes I think that's something that we forget about, especially when we're pissed off and our emotions get the best of us, you know, but I do, I do think that's so important is, is uh, that belief in the coach believing in the player and the player believing in themselves. And then, you know, the, the players believing in each other and believing in the systems and the structure that you're playing and believing in each other. Like, it's just, it's, it's a lot of it is just about belief. And that, that comes from a, a, a overall overarching, all encompassing kind of thing. Cause nobody can do it alone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, shapes kind of a, a perfect example of that. I think he's obviously got a reputation for being a hard, strict coach and, you know, kind of being a grinder. That's something that I've always prided myself on is, you know, being able to take that, that harsh love that, that the yelling and whatnot. But at the end of the day, like you said, there's, you can put up a facade of being this tough guy, but at the end of the day, you also need to know that, that, you know, that that coach believes in you, has trust in you and, you know, wants to be in your corner. And I think that's something um, that coaches, like you said, it is a fine line, but when coaches do go out of the way to say, after they say they ream a team or a specific player and kind of just go up to them and give them that tap on the, on the shin pad and, and say something in their ear, like, Hey, I believe in you. You're better than this, whatever. I think that that goes way farther than most people think. Yeah. And, and just that accountability factor, Jeff, you talk about it all the time. Like it, it, it has to come from a place of like, I know you're better than this. It's not like you suck. It's like, I've seen you be better than this. I know what you have in the tank and I want to see you get back to that point. All right. What can we do to help you get back to that point? Because coaches can't be, I believe in you all the time. If it's, if it's a false sense of like, yeah, I, right now you need to be better. And it's just, yeah, it's just a, it's a great, I think the great coaches really do a good job of that. They're hard and they're stern and they're tough, but they also have this underlying kind of personal characteristic where they can get guys to believe in themselves and believe in the team. And that's just, it's so important for individual and team growth and development. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head there for sure. Yeah. I mean, like I've seen it in my own business for nine or 10 years, however long I've been doing it in the gym and, and helping guys on the ice with it too. Just like, 
you yell at a guy, go back to like my junior career where a coach would just scream at you. And it's like, well, I'll go do it. But like, I don't believe in myself. And like, I might not be able to do it as well as if somebody was more like, I know you can do this, but you're not right now. Like I need more out of you. Like saying that gives without, you can't give anyone confidence, but like you're almost giving that player confidence, like saying, I believe in you. You're not doing what you need to do right now, but I do know that you can. So let's figure out a way for you to get your ass in gear and do what you need to do, because I believe you can do it instead of just, you suck. You're not doing it. Get on the bench. That doesn't motivate anyone. That doesn't help anyone find their confidence, find their game, find the belief in themselves. That's the biggest thing I have. The biggest problem I have with coaches that coach from that militaristic point of view, like that doesn't help anyone at all. Like I, I know very few players that could get the most out of themselves after something like that consistently over and over versus the other way where you're saying the same thing and you're still coming down on that player, but it's just in a way that is from a more positive place, which helps them, which helps the team, which helps everyone. Help me help you, Rod. Help me (laughs) help help you. you. (laughs) What movie listeners tweet at us. Oh, in, uh, Instagram, Jeff, he's verified. Just so you yeah, know, Instagram. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> Twitter that much. Uh, all right. So Barzy, so we get through your senior year and you sign your first pro contract, your free oh. sign, your first pro contract with Philly. What was that like? What were the feelings just signing that contract and for all, all of the stuff that you went through? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it was one of those situations where, you know, I didn't, re- I didn't think that I was going to, you know, play pro until kind of up to the last minute, I guess. in that senior year when you, you know, you mentioned that I kind of came on and, and I started getting some attention, but I still like going through the process up until then, I, you know, I didn't really think that that was, was going to be a possibility for the, So for then kind of that, to that contract to actually be in front of me, I just, I mean, it was, it was so surreal. I remember tell this to a bunch of guys too. It was funny kind of being a broke college student and then signing that first deal. And I was like, man, I can't wait to just get guac on my burrito at Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I vividly remember being like, I'm going to get guac whenever I want now. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a, a surreal moment. And, um, again, though, I don't think I was prepared for, for the next level as, as well as I should have from a, from a mental side. Um, obviously, you know, going to college for four years, being in the gym physically and everything else was there, but I think mentally I still, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for it to turn into a job. You know, I was still kind of in that scenario of, you know, we're all in it. We're all here to win. We just, you know, we care about each other and the team more so than the individual. And then when you get to pro, I mean, it's, I mean, people can say that they're a team, but at the end of the day, especially in the American league, guys are trying to get to the next level and, you know, you can't blame them. That's their goal to get to the NHL, but it becomes, I don't know, you become isolated very fast and, um, you know, the stakes become a lot higher. And I think that, again, I wasn't, I wasn't fully prepared mentally for, for that leap. Next, does that ring a bell? Uh, I mean, my situation was just so weird because it was like cloud nine and then nothing for a year and a half. So I, I, I mean, it, I, I wasn't thinking I'm going to get guac on my burrito. That wasn't the first thought going through my head. I was thinking, let's make it rain. No, I'm just kidding. No, actually, my coach at college was like, you know, you get, you have a, a nice truck. A lot of players go out and just drop money on an Escalade or spend a whole bunch of money on something they don't need. 
don't do that. And I just kept hearing him say that. So like, that's all I could think about. Don't buy a car. So I don't know that. And then you just get there and you're just excited. And and then you're, no matter what, when you did, Barzi, did you go right to the AHL after uh, your last season or did you wait till the next year? I, I went and I think I played like 14 or 15 games and oh, I got was, a lot in. I got a lot of games and our, our team wasn't good. I remember we had like, a bunch of heavyweights on our team too. There's like six fights a game because we were so bad too. And I just meant like, what, what am I doing here? Right <laughs> I was, you know, and uh, I, I just, I just really struggled. I kind of clammed up and, you know, didn't want to touch the puck. You know, the one thing I always go back to when my confidence struggling is like catching pucks on my back end, you know, a, a staple that when, when I'm feeling it, I, I want the puck, blah, blah, blah. And I just remember like, even in practice, shying away from drills where I had to touch, where I had to use my back hand. I was sawing wood trying to catch passes. And I, it was just, uh, my confidence was, was so shot. And I was like, I want to, I just want to go back to school and hang out with my buddies and enjoy this, this senior spring. It was, it was, it was a tough one. Yes. Wow, that, yeah, I had quite a bit different experience and I played 14 games as well I, we lost we got swept uh, at Western and I went re- two days later was on a plane to Boston and um, I, our team was like it, they had the best record in the AHL of all time I think like oh, at, at that point yeah and it's I basically went basically all the Bruins that are up there right now <laughs> honestly it was basically Boston's team from like five years ago but uh, we at school I think we won like seven or eight games my junior year before I signed, I went there to, to Providence and we won 13 of 14. So I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Pro hockey's money. <laughs> I get two to three days off every week. End of the year, the boys are just winning every game. So like, it was like, I was on cloud nine when I went there. So I definitely had a different experience. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and I also man. went from playing, you know, at, at Cornell, I was playing, I mean, I don't know how many minutes I was playing, but obviously leading the forward group in, in minutes and, you know, playing in all situations. And then I got there and I was playing fourth line and getting four or five minutes a night. And um, I, I don't, I just remembered like, how am I supposed to produce in this situation playing four or five minutes? Like I have no idea how to be successful in this role. And um I never like I, free, I remember leaving our exit meetings too, and and uh, Hextall was the GM at the time, and he was just like, "You got to make a way to to make those four or five minutes count because at the end of the day, you're you're not going to be just given twenty minutes ice time. He's like, you're going to have to find a way to work your way up the chart and like make some noise in those four or five minutes. That's the only way that you're going to benefit. So I think those words kind of really resonated with me pretty well and took that in stride in the summer and, and had a better, you know, mental outlook when I came back for the, for the first regular season there. Is there anything else? You said, you, you know, you worked hard in the summer. Is there anything else you did? Because I think that that specific situation actually happens to a lot of players going up in levels from probably like 13 to 14 year old AAA players every year they go up, you know, you might be the big dog first, second line, on your 14s team, but then you get to 15s and now you're third or fourth line, or it might happen to a guy from 16s to 18s, 18s to midgets, midgets to college, college to pro. So, I mean, that always would kind of happen to me as well. So is there anything mentally that, that you, you did physically, like what did you do to kind of be okay with that and change it going into the next season? Right. I don't know if it happened like specifically after that, that summer or that first summer, but I definitely went through a massive transformation in how I trained in the sense that, especially going to the program and being at Cornell, it was always kind of like, you know, spend as many hours as you can in, in the gym, get as big or as strong as possible. 
and, and that will translate and kind of just from, you know, person. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> Jeff shaking his head. Just oh, from personal. <laughs> I honestly, I just always got hurt I, from it. And I think that that was a big thing. I actually missed my second year training camp because I got a sports hernia and I know it's from kind of overstretching and overtraining in the summer, to be honest. So I kind of made this transition from, you know, stop trying to be a hero in the gym, which was hard and focus more so on my skill development and like you touched on mentally too is after my second year I really you know the mental game is what kind of clicked for me that I think kind of got me to that next level but I started putting in a lot of work to my mental game whether that was you know meditation talking to our sports psychologists or reading there's just my mental game really developed after my second or third year and I think that that's what took me to the next level because and that's something that I would preach to young kids I obviously it's important when you're younger you got to get bigger stronger faster but there comes a point where you know weights aren't going to score goals the same as you know putting on putting the work in the ice and between the ears as well so are you Man. saying so are you saying that one line you can't score goals from the weight room is is uh that's uh it took me a long time i definitely was very i remember remember especially it happens i guess with like major junior guys who i guess aren't in the gym as much not all of them but some of them and i remember just, most of them most of them. <laughs> but I remember just laughing at them, thinking that they were, you know, ridiculous, that I'm, I'm working so hard in the gym, it's going to translate to me getting a call up. And it was just, I was so far off in my, in my belief of, of what was important. It's funny now too, is I was my first training camp. I remember I, I'm five, nine and I weighed in at two ten. And right, and right now, and right now, just player in this path. (laughs) And right now, at this point as a player, I'm like 185, 190, and I just always go up to the you know 25 pound barbell there and be like, man, I was carrying this around and just skating around the ice like this, just couldn't stick handle, couldn't do anything, and it's just crazy how far I've I've transformed in, in that regard. Vax, as a strength coach, what do you say to that? Just, you know, because I think still, yeah, I was going to say, there's some kids that are probably listening to this and be like, Oh, I guess I don't need to work out. But like, what, uh, like, how do you find that balance as a trainer and, and how have you evolved in, in basically from where you were training when you were going through the process as a pro and, and how you train your pro guys now? I mean, it's night and day. Yeah, well, Barzy, we would have been boys, man, because we sound very similar, and that's hilarious. I also had trouble catching passes on my backhand, so it's like the hilarious you said that. But uh, um, when I was training, when I was coming up, it was the same thing. Like I wasn't doing bodybuilding lifts, I would, but I, the things I was doing did not translate to the ice. Back squat, hang clean, all these things that I personally do not believe make you a better hockey player. Um, they might make you more powerful or more strong, but that doesn't actually necessarily make you a better athlete. Uh, yeah, you need to be powerful. Yeah, you need to be strong. But in ways that I believe translate to the ice, I I won training camp in the NHL. Like I, everywhere I went, strongest guy. Until I started training myself, my second, maybe third year pro, and I really looked into like athleticism and how to train in the gym in a way that will translate to the ice, like directly translate to the ice. Um, I felt the same way. I felt boxy on the ice on my edges. I'd feel a little bit uncomfortable. And this is while I'm under NHL contract at the highest possible level, the highest contract you can get. And, and you're right, man. Like if you do the wrong things in the gym, I think that it actually can hurt you on the ice, but if you're doing the right things in the gym, in the gym, if you're training in a way that will translate, that is making you a better athlete, not just like stronger, a better athlete, 
lifting in ways that work on your balance, your proprioception, your coordination, it will elevate your game. But I, I definitely think that you, you need to be training in a certain way to elevate your hockey game, not elevate you in the gym, which when I was coming up, it sounds like it was the same for you. It was uh, train strength coaches were training us to be better in the gym. And that doesn't translate. Like you need to think about, and it doesn't mean, and here's something for the people listening, like functional training, like five years ago became a big deal, maybe 10 years ago. And people would try and mimic what they're doing on the ice in the gym. And that's not what functional training is just because you do a skating stride this way on the ice. doesn't mean you do that in the gym, but you strengthen your muscles in a way that will directly translate to the way your legs move. You don't have to actually move your legs the same way. So for the people listening, just to like get that visual, but yeah, I mean, training in a proper way that makes you a better athlete will change your game for the better training to be better in the gym. I truly believe actually hurts you. For sure. And kind of going off that too, I think that, you know, I, I, I did, I just told joked about it there too, like saying how that came off as the gym's not important. And that's, and that's not what I'm, what I'm saying at all. Cause the gym is extremely important, especially for young kids who, you know, that's how they're going to get to that next level is they're going to be stronger on pucks. They're going to have a faster, quick, you know, two strides that can, you know, create space for them. But I also think what I kind of meant by that is you got to know yourself as a player. For me, uh, you know, I had not maxed out my, my, the gym side of things, but that, that wasn't where I needed to get better at that particular time. I needed to get better on the ice. I needed to grow my confidence as a player. Cause that's, that's where the most growth was going to come for me. You take a young prospect who maybe already, you know, drafted first round, top three rounds, whatever already has the confidence. His skill is off the charts. Maybe he, that's what needs is going to get him to the next level is spending a little bit more time in the gym in the summer. So I think it's just kind of being aware of, of what part of your game you need to, um, to strengthen. I think for me, I was also just so comfortable in the gym that that's where I wanted to stay. I didn't want to leak out into like the skill zone and, you know, growing up, I'm sure you felt the same way that I always was under the belief that like holding stuff in and, 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 you know, not talking about your emotions or what you're struggling with was mentally tough. You know, no one went and seeked out a sports psychologist that would make you, that'd make you weak. You weren't tough. Um, so I think that that's kind of, when I finally got over that hump of, of caring about that and realizing that is actually what I need is when I started taking the biggest stride. So again, kind of just to wrap it up, I would say that it's really know yourself as a player or, or parents really, really know your, your kid inside and out and, and where he's struggling. You know, don't go with the masses of you got to put in X amount of time here, X amount of time there. I really think it's important to know what individual strengths and weaknesses you have as a player and, and attack those weaknesses and make them better yeah, and that helps your mental health too like it's not just for a sure. hockey thing like i remember when we sat down for coffee a couple of years back in uh in allentown um when i was there doing the usa hockey thing and and like you were telling me about all this stuff and i'm you just like had a different aura i, I don't know if aura is the right word but you just for sure it seemed like you were very just content and fulfilled and happy with yourself and where things were going and eventually that led to you growing and developing and earning your shot and getting your first NHL games with, uh, with the Islanders. And so I, I, I mean, we were like all of us that, that have coached or played, you were just so happy, <clears throat> excuse me, so happy, so proud of you. Like, what was that like getting that call? Number one, to, to go up with the Islanders. And then number two, you have to tell the story of your first goal because the first goal was, <laughs> 
unbelievable <laughs> yeah that's a lot but kind of to touch on what you said of like being content it's kind of it's kind of funny how how things work out and it kind of leads into into that conversation as well but you know my whole time like after that first year you know, I just started gripping my stick so tight. And all I wanted was, was one NHL game. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't this guy who wanted to, or had the belief in himself. I'm kind of jealous of the guys that do, but they, you know, they want those million dollar contracts. They want to be in the show, the leading score, blah, blah, blah. That wasn't my mindset at the time. It was always just, I want one game, blah, blah, blah. And I was gripping the stick so hard and it leaked into you know, my life in general, my relationships, I was, I was miserable because I I wasn't, wasn't kind of, I wasn't getting what I wanted or what I thought I deserved. And it just, it was spilling into everything. But that summer before we had coffee there, you know, I finally, like I said, I picked up the phone and got over that stigma of being mentally weak and called our sports psychologist there in Allentown, uh, Jared Spencer, and started working on this and kind of just being, working on my mental game and being content with what I had. And long story short, I'll never forget it. The the day before I got called up, I remember talking to one of my best buddies back home and just being like, man, I'm, you know, I'm happy. I'm satisfied. You know, I really, even if I never get the shot in the NHL, like I, I'm content being a hockey player, showing up to the rink. I'm, I'm playing hockey for a living. This is awesome. And, and I remember telling him then, and sure enough, the, the next day I, I got the call up and it was it was, it was so surreal. The story of that is actually, I'm going to go on a tangent now, but it's actually kind of, kind of funny too. I remember leaving the rink and um, my girlfriend at the time, we had just started talking to each other and she was coming to visit for the first time. And she was taking the train in from the city. And I remember going and picking her up in the, at the train station. And the second she stepped foot out, out of the door, I got a call from our, our head coach being like, Hey, you need to come back here now because you're going to play in Columbus. And if you don't make this flight, you're not playing. And I remember, so I obviously had come to the, come to the conclusion that I wasn't going to get my shot. And I just have all these emotions rolling, running out of me. And she steps off with her bags. And I just remember being like, I'm sorry, but you got to get back on the train. I got, <laughs> I got, I got somewhere to go here. And, <laughs> I got to uh, go. <laughs> I got to go. So head back to the rink and I I'm wearing joggers and my dad's plumbing company sweatshirt. I remember. And they call me like, where are you? You're going to miss the, miss the flight. And I was like, I'm just going to give get a suit. He's like, don't worry about a suit. Get here now. So I got to the rink, grabbed my bag, got to the airport and uh, ended up missing my first flight. And so I'm panicking, get on a second one. But I remember on the plane too, it was funny. Um, luckily there, it wasn't a very full plane. I had nothing to entertain me, you know, no, iPad or book or anything like that. And I remember just my emotions going from crying to laughing to joking. I was like, do people on this plane probably think I'm on drugs or something like that? Cause I'm just all over the map. And then, uh, you know, sure enough, got to the rink probably 10 minutes before warm up in, in my joggers and my sweatshirt. It ended up probably being the best thing for me. Cause I had no time to think. And I just grabbed my stuff on and went to the, went to the went to the door and jumped out there and I went it was crazy so wow. cool man so cool man and it's then uh, everybody's got a first goal story everybody's got a first goal story and yours was hilarious and unreal what uh tell tell our listeners about it yeah so um I probably been I don't know what game it was if it was like the seventh or eighth game that I was up but um 
I had like four breakaways in my first six games, which was crazy. Missed all of them. Of course I've never, my, my breakaways have always been horrendous. I don't know. It's a mental thing for sure too, but always struggled on breakaways. And it's funny cause I get a bunch of them. Cause that's kind of, you know, my thing is my, my speed. But uh, so anyways, missed four or five breakaways. And I remember my, this game, I probably shouldn't have stayed out there a little bit longer, but I kind of anticipated a little D to D and intercepted it, went in, got hauled down. And the second I got hauled down in my head, I'm like, Oh shit, dude, they're going to give me a penalty shot. I do not want this right now. One, I was so gassed and just being so nervous. And I obviously look over and he, and he gives the big, big point to center ice. And I'm like, I've never been so nervous in my life, just absolutely freaking out and um, go over to the bench, grab a sip of water. And, you know, I got people like, everyone telling me what to do you know like pull a backhand toe drag or something i'm like i'm not doing that yeah exactly but uh and then our assistant coach was finally just he was like just just shoot it so in my head i know i'm just gonna shoot there's no way i'm trying to deke and at the time it's a one-one game so it's like this is it's it's there's something on the line and uh i just remember getting the center ice looking up at the crowd and being like man this is a this is a moment if i've ever seen one and to be honest, kind of blacked out, but went in and, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was Anderson. He's, I feel like he's an old school goalie who was kind of, you know, we'll give you a low blocker and then kind of right as you shoot, we'll move into it. And so that's what happened. He kind of gave me low block, went to shoot there, but I missed my shot so bad that when he kicked his leg out, it hit off his pad and went in. <laughs> and, oh, I just remember, I'm still smirking about it now, but just remember kind of screaming and going down the line and just being like, I, I cannot believe this just happened. <laughs> so I remember that Vex, I gotta, sh- I gotta like send you the, the link to it because it's really a really cool moment and cool video, but there's two things that I remember from it. And I actually tweeted it out the next day and it's been like, for me, one of the most successful, if that's what you want to call it, tweets in terms of people interacting with it and thinking it was awesome because you know, what I wrote on there is number one, like the pure joy that came and maybe it was relief too, that you got your first goal after all those breakaways. It was joy, I don't know. It was joy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but the pure joy that you showed and the emotion, um, after scoring that goal was like, and knowing you as well as I do and having coached you for four years, it was, it was just such a cool thing to see. Um, and, and all of the stuff that you went through with the injuries and the ups and the downs, I mean, it just, there's very few times, if any, I've been that happy for a player that I've coached. It was just a really cool thing. But the second thing that I thought was really, really cool was, you know, you had only been up for seven or eight games, like you said, but to me, the, the, the biggest thing that I took out of the clip in, in watching that was how excited your team was for you. Like your teammates on the bench went absolutely bananas and they were so happy for you. They like, they were so pumped and like, that's not common, especially for someone coming up. That's only been with the team for seven or eight games. Like they were like, the coaches were all like smiling from ear to ear. The players were all so excited and they were giving, like, they were so happy for you coming to the bench. And like, so what was that like, you know, that, that reception that you got from the bench and just all the emotion going through you after you scored. I mean, it must, I don't even know if you can talk about it. It's more of an emotion thing, but take us through it. Yeah. I mean, obviously at the time, that's not something that was, you know, that was, was coming through, but I mean, I can't say enough good things about the Islanders organization, especially those guys. I mean, 
from the second I got up there, they made me feel a part of the team coming up, asking me what I need. And it's just so crazy how far, you know, something as little as just coming up and, and talking to you for a couple of minutes can go to just make you feel comfortable. And that translates so much to the ice. And I just, again, can't say enough about that organization. And I don't, and I think that is rare. I don't think that you see that on every, on every single team. Um, but I also remember like after my first game, uh, you know, being like, okay, I got my game. You can send me down. I'm good now. You know? And I think that, uh, you know, I don't know, guys, guys took to me pretty well. I think kind of for that reason too, that they, I don't know if they didn't feel threatened for me, like coming for their spot or whatnot, but I just always felt so welcomed and that allowed me to kind of really show my game and, and, and come out of my shell. So I just really can't, you know, thank them enough for, for that. And I don't think any of them really know how far that goes, but it, it does. It's huge. Well, Vex, you had a similar experience in Boston too, right? I mean, it's, it's no secret that creating a culture like that leads to success for teams and, and Boston's kind of been the model organization or at least one of them for the past decade or so. And when you got up there, it was, I mean, Chara, uh, Tim Thomas, when he was there, Bergeron, like Marshawn, all those guys, you were a, just a rookie coming up and they went out of their way to, you know, welcome you and make you feel like you're a part of it. Yeah. Thomas was a beauty, man. I told you, like when I got sent down, when I was the last cut, my the first year after my concussion, he was like, you're going to be back up here right away. Like, and he like went out of his way to say that to me. And I, I always say like, whether he meant it or not, like it meant a shitload to me and gave me confidence to go down to the American league. And I think I started off like leading rookie scoring in the AHL for the first month, or I was close as a, you know, as a power forward grinder type guy, like, cause, cause all I kept thinking about was like, Thomas said, I'm going to be back. This is sick. <laughs> Like, you know, all those, so, so any players like listening to this, it doesn't matter what team you're on college, junior, whatever amateur, like if you're an older player or a better player on a team, like go out of your way, talk to the younger guys, introduce yourself, like talk to them in the line and practice, tell them what they're doing well, like be there to mentor them because not only is it going to make you a better leader, it's going to make better friends. It's going to make your team better. It's going to make the organization better. It is so important. And, with job, when, when it comes to being a pro, like jobs are jobs. There's going to be guys taking jobs. There's going to be guys losing jobs, but none of that hinges on if you're nice to the guy or not, you might as well be nice to him and just everybody work as hard as you can and get better. And by you helping that guy out, it actually might make you keep your job because you're a better leader. So the, so the, the coaches, the management, whoever in pro or ju- major junior, they see that they're going to want you around more because you're going to make their younger players better for years to come. So being selfish, you know, never gets you anywhere in team sports. Amen. Amen. Well, this is a great little segue to the last thing I want to talk about, Barzi. And and you're obviously still playing, but you have another passion that uh, I think is absolutely incredible. And you've started a group, the Bardrow Mentoring Group, the BMG, and uh, using some of the things that you've learned along your journey to to kind of pay it forward and and give back to to the youth coming up today. And I just think this is something that is so 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 unbelievable that uh, that you're starting here. So if you can uh, talk to our listeners a little bit, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that would be interested in something like this but what is the Bardrow mentoring group and and what are you looking to do yeah kind of make a long story short um you know we talked about how I kind of when I really took that turn there is when I started focusing on the mental side of my game and that's something that um you know I'm really passionate really believe in and, and that's something that I want to definitely pursue um 
definitely pursue when my, when my time playing is done, but this summer, obviously with the extra time, kind of thinking about how I can work towards that goal. Um, and it wasn't, you know, not having a job, it wasn't the best time to go back to school to get my, you know, master's in psychology or whatnot at this point, but thinking about how I could really, you know, what I could create to really help the next generation of player. And for me, I, I decided to start this Bardro mentoring group where basically I just, kind of half consulting, half mentor, where I just help these kids kind of navigate the obstacles that are going to rise on and off the ice um, as they pursue their careers. And, you know, for me, I talked about how my family wasn't really a big hockey family. And for me, that kind of led me to to experience a lot of things by trial and error. And I think that, um, you know, after I played in the NHL, I looked back, there was, there was so much that I realized I wish I would have changed and wish that I had this, this guidance kind of, and that's something that I want to give back to these next kids is something as, you know, as simple as dealing with, you know, tough coaches or, you know, what stick to use or, you know, how to handle dealing with tough players on their team. Um, I just want to be there to kind of take the uncertainty out of their journey and lead to, uh, you know, growing confidence for them to help their development. That's awesome. That's awesome. So where can, uh, where can people go? I know you got a website, where can people go to, uh, to learn about it and, and to possibly if, to sign up, sign up everybody. Jeez, this, this is, this is unreal. You got an NHL player here who's looking to mentor some people. And, and obviously when you're an NHL player, uh, our networks, I, sh- I said are like I was an NHL player, not even <laughs> close, um, but your networks are huge and you can get some more people involved as this thing continues to grow. So where can they, uh, where can they find your information and learn a little bit more about it? Right. So, so the, the, the business here is still in its infancy stages, but to get more information, you can go to com. I got a website there with kind of describes a little bit better of, of what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to offer. Um, you know, at the same point, I, I'm, I'm really trying to keep it a, a small group. You know, I want to keep my, my clientele smaller so I can really give them the individual attention, individual attention that's needed and kind of not get into this, you know, cookie cutter formula, but um, yeah, again, bardromentoringgroup.com and, uh, you know, just looking forward to helping the, the next wave of kids here. Vex, how cool is this that he's doing? Well, I absolutely love that, man. That's a player of your stature. That's, that's badass. Like, this is a game changer. Like, if this is a legitimate game changer, I think, because I think our game and our youth hockey, you know, Jeff and I are both very much involved in it right now. There's a, a huge need is not even a that's not even doing it justice for the kind of need of mentorship in, in youth hockey for these players today with just the way that the game is kind of going with it being so professionalized, so young and, and uh, you know, even mental health being something that is uh, it we've talked about more and more nowadays. And especially in during these times of COVID, I mean, uh, we talk about mentorship all the time and how important it is. And here's an opportunity to, to kind of get that from somebody that's gone through the ringer and somebody that's experienced the highs and the lows and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I just, I, I agree. This is just such an awesome, awesome thing that you're doing, man. And, and I know it's going to be a home run and, and uh, anything that I can do to help you just let us know. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I really think that it's going to be beneficial. And I, again, I just look, ho- I look forward to helping these young careers and helping them, you know, hopefully avoid some of the, the roadblocks that I definitely smashed into head first. Along the way. So, 
<laughs> you and you and us both. Yeah. <laughs> we all do. Yours yours was literal, a roadblock <laughs> head first that put you out for a little bit. Um, but you, you got through it and that's everything. We talk about resiliency and how it's one of the most important traits you can have for being a successful player and human. And uh you are my friend, are an extremely resilient, awesome kid. And and uh well, you're not a kid anymore. I say that because I coached you, but um, <laughs> but so awesome to get you on this podcast. So awesome for, for all of our listeners and, and, and our groups here to, to hear your story. And, and it's just an incredible story. So appreciate you taking the time to coming out here today and, and chatting with us and, uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch here soon. For sure. I had a blast. Thanks guys. Appreciate it.